Hello, and welcome to the Always Already podcast. We're your hosts, Rachel, Emily, and B. And we're here today to talk about The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson. Um, so this book is a memoir, so it's quite different from the text we normally read. So we're going to approach it with a slightly different game plan. Generally, we try to select a couple chapters, and if, if this is your first time listening, I'll give you a, a little... How, how to, to how yeah the the ways the inner workings of the always <laughs> already podcast always already for um, <laughs> you know we sort of try to figure out what are the main claims the overall project what are the politics of it because we love politics um, <laughs> what's the but, normative stakes <laughs> yeah. right always what are the normative what, what are the what ethical are the... commitments <laughs> um, is Levinas in it <laughs> no no. Um, it's a little bit more difficult to do with this kind of text, so we thought for today what, what we would do instead is um, talk about what questions this text raised for us as readers of it and sort of talk through those questions in the context of um, both the work, the critical theory contained in the memoir itself, but also in the sort of critical theory of our the archive of our shared our shared archive of our minds, yeah. and um, you know the one the one we share with you, That's readers. True. And I like this approach. And I, you know, I think that. Oh, good. No, no, I love no, I love the approach. I love the fact that like we're we're dealing with an entirely new genre, as it were, um, yeah. and not just something that's like. So it's a blend, right? It's on the one hand, it's academic because it deals with so many academic writers that, you know, you graduate students and social theorists out there or you folks that aren't coming into this with like, you know, graduate career career in mind, career, career? Uh, a career uh, in mind um, that the memoir here is enlisting a whole series of, you know, really important and like and, and resplendent uh, thinkers. And so I didn't mean to giggle through that sentence, but when you said career I was about to say well, it's almost like you're sitting under a blanket or something well I was thinking, well, I was thinking about the word queer yeah. while I was saying it oh. I was like queer theory Judith Butler I love her uh-huh. um because I'm <clears> such <throat> a you know Butler fanatic as you know um so you know I, I suppose like let's we, interrogate that fanaticism no we should <laughs> I think so um and Judith Butler if you're listening um I tweeted you um like a few weeks ago and you never um, tweeted back you never and really responded hurt. and okay. I hold a grudge but anyway, okay, um, we'll I take know. that out in post. <laughs> okay. uh, I love you. Um, we'll this explore the term creepy. I love you. What? We're exploring things. <clears throat> so yeah, that's true. We each have what does few... it mean to say I love you to I love Judith you. Butler over, over right? the podcast, which may or may not ever reach her, right? To right. just throw that out into to the air. To say I love you. Like, what does that... What does that mean? Maybe you should spontaneously write a poem. I'm an Argonaut of love. <laughs> Um, like well, I think that we each have, I hate like, love three... I see, it's so strange, because I love love poems, personally. Pablo Neruda. Um, Should we have a poem breakout We session? could. I could write oh, a poem. Oh, yeah. I could read a poem from my upcoming... Oh, book. maybe we'll close the podcast with a poem today. We could, yeah, actually. We could do that. Excellent idea. Um, So, in lieu of a summary this time, since it's a memoir, and we weren't quite sure how to summarize a memoir, I'm just going to talk about the sort of, like, arc, I guess, of the narrative like, arc. Like, if, if there was a kind of linear plot to be <laughs> discerned in here, um, the text sort of opens with um, Nelson and the partner encountering each other for the first time as sort of, like, what does it mean to 
be in love and then it's like new and what does it mean to say I love you and then the like arc of the story sort of follows them uh, building a family together and their sort of bulk of it is about the transformation of Nelson's body during pregnancy which is simultaneous with her partner's um, hormonal transformation at um, sort of taking testosterone and having um, chest surgery for the first time and this sort of like simultaneity of this um, sort of embodied transformation and um, trying to sort of chart or work through the gendered aspects of that and the sort of like normative and transgressive aspects of that. So that's the, the like vague sort of plot narrative arc. And I think one other arc just to throw in is her intellectual arc. Yeah. So she kind of traces uh, ways she's thought about concepts around identity politics and queer politics and language and the politics of words and naming in the past and how she's uh, changed her thinking in certain ways. So there's also a certain, in some ways it reminded me of like an Ars Poetica, like the poem where you write mm -hmm. about who inspires you and what your poem is. Mm -hmm. A poem, a poetry about how you write poems. Right. Uh, and in some ways it reminded me of that as well. And some of these uh, particular thinkers are, you know, for example, like Julia Kristeva and Sedgwick and Judith Butler, Jacques Lacan, and then we have Deleuze. Um, we have Ann Carson. We also have Luz Irigaray. Also so our favorite, Ralph, Sarah Ahmed. Uh, Sarah Ahmed. We also have Ralph Waldo Emerson. I mean, it's a pretty wide-ranging list of people that you know she's engaging in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in terms of themes, there's also themes that, that run through. Um, one is pregnancy and the body. Another is transformation. Another is love and being in love and the utterance of uh, love and how love is both kind of the... Uh, container like a word is mm -hmm. she kind of likens it to a word um that is is on one hand on one hand ex uh, expected to kind of like nominate uh name a very particular feeling and also the context wherein the meaning of these words changes all the time mm -hmm. um and other other themes include um the normative versus the transgressive um living in the thing that you do we talked about being both um within a family structure or what she calls a tribe and also um, only being in that by happenstance because you're actually just doing your, um, you know, you're only, you're fulfilling your own individual desire. Um, and then also um, memoir and um, her, in some ways, heretical and beautiful engagement with uh, form that's not typically uh, used in critical theory mm -hmm. and certainly political theory. Yeah. Right. So that's a, a crude sort of summary, but um, not, not within our normal keeping. But um, maybe we could just start with one of those and like and move forward. Yeah, for sure. Point. A lot of the themes that Rachel just listed um, sort of anticipate some of the questions mm -hmm. that were yielded from this text for for all of us. Um, should we start with the question of form? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to pose the question B as you had posed it earlier? Yeah, sure. I wondered whether, um, you know, the, the form of the memoir and, you know, not to suppose that like form and content are somehow like, you know, dichotomous and, and presupposed, but like, you know, how does this memoir um, kind of help to parallel this idea behind becoming and being? Mm -hmm. And how
how memoir is actually used as a method through which we can then, you know, kind of examine the ways in which identity is a form of becoming, because that seems to be an mm-hmm. ongoing theme. It's not just a static way of identification, but rather um, things, you know, become transgressive, things become, and again, uh, you know, this this becomes problematized later, but um, how are things problematized through the memoir that would not otherwise be problematized mm-hmm. in other forms of academic writing? And I think that was such a, a wonderful and beautiful way of, you know, just getting through the fact that disciplinarily speaking, a journal article or a regular, you know, even a, a book in academic settings, I don't think can can really do what the memoir does. Mm-hmm. And so I was sort of posing the question of how does the memoir engage in that? And yeah. what, can, what can we learn from the memoir in that regard? I think one thing it does is um, mess with audience. And mm-hmm. so when you're writing a journal article or a book chapter, I mean, a lot of times in past podcasts, we've asked, who are they writing to? Mm-hmm. And it's all, I mean, it seems to be most often a combination of either, um, you know, this element of academia or this element of activism in academia. But mm-hmm. it's academia if you kind of take the lowest common denominator. And I think in this memoir, at times she's writing to specific people, like she uses the you, she's writing to Harry, she's writing to academics, she's writing to philosophers, she's writing to none of the above. And then also she's writing to no one. And I think that that's part of her flirtation with the idea of the transgressive and the normative. If mm-hmm. you're not talking to, to anybody, if you're not uttering something so anyone can hear. And actually she says at the beginning, um, she's talking about when she's kind of uh, in this period of solitude. And she says, um, she, she's talking about how she would um, take long walks to and from the Y through the sordid Bougainville. How do you say that word? Bougainville. Strewn. It's a flower. Oh, thank you. Back streets of Hollywood. <laughs> Evening drives up and down Mulholland to kill the long nights, and of course, maniacal bouts of writing, learning to address no one. And I thought that that was um, a really interesting place that mm-hmm. she could go because it was a memoir. Mm-hmm. What? I mean, I think the Is thing there that's so. Fe- well, what? <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry. No, I was just like, there seems to be more freedom then with this kind of like, writing, writing to no one. Right? Yeah, well, free, what do you mean by freedom, my <laughs> friend? Oh, gosh, it's <laughs> sultry and freedom. Sultry um, and freedom. You mean like well, Rousey and freedom? Uh, wrong, oh, God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like on some level, you know, you get to express yourself in ways that, you know, become even more critical um, and more, in that sense, articulated than you would be able to if writing, you know, within an academic you know, journal, as it were, and this yeah. is no less academic, right. you know, and that's one thing that I want to stress is like, just simply because it's not appearing, you know, either in academic press or an academic journal, quote, you know, quote, unquote, mm-hmm. but rather, you know, it's, it's taking on these, these themes and these, these really, in, in one sense, these argonauts, <laughs> juggernauts <laughs> of, of theory and social theory, so many knots. right, so many knots in ways that I think like really gave um, the author, you know, uh, a certain degree of, um, you know, a freedom that I don't think an author would, or a thinker would otherwise have engaged. Maybe I'm wrong, yeah. but, you know. No, I, so for me, the thing that I think is so interesting about this is, right, so that question of who your audience is, mm-hmm. I think the reason why we keep asking that question on the podcast as far as I can tell, or I mean, I think I know you guys pretty well. Um, but I think the stakes for us are ultimately politics, right? Like yeah. if if 
you know, we talk about this with like Deluza babble or like <laughs> jargon, you know, yes. like if, if the stakes of the thing are really so high that it's like life or death, right. Or like if that's what politics is, right. Politics is life and death. And if we're trying to think critically and think politically, then like, what does it mean to, what does it mean to make the claim that like the way language works is inadequate or, mm-hmm. Um, that our words are not sufficient to express the thing we're trying to express, or not even express, but to, like, mirror reality, right? Because there's, like, a way in which the reality that is made possible in language doesn't encompass the, the like, you know, reality of all that there is, right? You and, mean there's always a mm-hmm. remainder that's left oh. behind? Oh, I got it in. Oh, I did it. <laughs> What? Thanks, Ray. Sorry, um, I we were we were joking earlier about how we all have our little bits that we. Bring oh, is that your bit? In that's everything, the remainder. and mine is like the little like Adorno. There's always a remainder that's left behind. So, anyways, Aww. I just wanted to like do my um, do you caricature justice. Wait, what was my yeah. shtick? You have yeah. many shticks. Uh, uh, Levinas. You already said Levinas Lacan. once in this 13 minute podcast. Levinas, Lacan, and Inscription Latour. of politics. Okay, I was making a oh, very yeah, poignant point was. here, you guys. Sorry, Come sorry. sorry. Um, I've totally lost Blame it. Blame it on Rachel. Oh, okay. So I think the thing to. So keeping all of that in mind, right? About like the politics of the audience and the lim- limits of language or limits of linguistics, right? To like write something that, that engages so thoughtfully with critical theory, but there's also a memoir. I think that question of like who you're writing to becomes mm-hmm. even more interesting politically, mm-hmm. right? Because there's some, I, I don't know. I liked this sort of like irreverence of it. You know, mm-hmm. there's a kind of like irreverence for, you know, the canon of philosophy, irreverence for like women's studies and like feminism as a thing that like, grapples with the question of the woman, right? There's, like, a kind of irreverence for these, like, the grandiose questions. And so, like, the memoir form, then I wonder, you know, like, what... Is it is it also, like, in saying the audience is no one, like, what political move is that? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. There's something that... That's really uh, rounded off. No, no, no. I think it's, like, <laughs> it's so fucking spot on because I think, you know, for me... <laughs> no, because as you were talking... I, I, like, Thankfully, we have an explicit rating. Right, I because well, as you were just speaking... It, it, so like, asshole spot on. Well, fuck. You know, well, if we do, we should be able to express ourselves. I think, like, okay. on some level, um, you know, as, as you were just speaking, I thought, you know, it, of my own um, engagement with this idea that reason somehow needs to constrain the ways in which we speak. And, you know, as we all move forward through various review processes in our own work, as we think through how we're attempting to, you know, find our voice, our style, our way of thinking, um, as it's constrained by either academia, but also constrained by, you know, the voice of this idea that reason in itself has to be legible. Like, this is something that, you know, I fight with, you know, either daily or, you know, in my own work on a, you know, on an academic level is, like what constitutes legibility, yeah. you know, this is one of those You mean fights. in writing or politically? In writing, in, in everyday life, mm-hmm. um, from trans being to everyday being, like all of these things, like I think culminate in a memoir about how to get, you know, legibility outside of these like pure, you know, it, fighting in, in one sense politically against this notion mm-hmm. that we have to adhere to some prescribed way of communicative style. Uh-huh. And I think like, 
that, you know, if we're going to go the route of saying, oh, well, you know, what's the political stakes or whatever, I think the memoir is a beautiful way of going around, you know, engaging with something, as you were just mentioning in what you were saying, it's like in a beautiful way of saying, this is how I'm engaging with these texts, these thoughts. Mm-hmm. Here are my thoughts. This is personal. This is, you know, this is narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, this is argumentative. Do you mean like my my being me putting on my Maggie Nelson hat? Like oh, yeah, yeah, my, yeah, no, yeah. My right. engagement with <laughs> yeah. like Butler, Cedric, Batigue is like, this is how this is how theory works upon me right. or it through, me, through or, me. Yeah, right? interesting. And Sorry. No, no, no. I, I and, yeah. and as so, right? Yeah, yeah. No, and, and as such, like that's yeah, that's how I, I was mm-hmm. reading what you were saying. Yeah. No, I mean, I was just thinking the way that she kind of um, intersperses these small sections of um, Barthes or um, the English Patient. She takes a piece from the English Patient and all these different works and throws them in. I think it's also kind of reversing the power dynamic in some way because mm-hmm. she's using these pieces oh, of text instrumentally I don't want to say instrumentally but she's scooping up that which is useful to her for her own exploration mm-hmm. and using it to further her thoughts rather than just using the text as a basis to critique and work around and it's sort of the inverse in a certain way of what you would see in a journal article but is the memoir only just like an expression or an exploration of self That's it doesn't have to be I think that it's a, it's a content for an argument right it's like mm-hmm. because aren't we always doing that oh god always already but like aren't we always Cheers. doing that even in our own writing when we are expressing ourselves we're like really the way that I you know explain this to my students is when you're writing a piece it's difficult when people come to me and they say I learned in you know composition 101 that I should never write in first person you know I should always write in third person and I'm like no you're making an argument say I it's okay to say I you know in my classroom um and you know where the memoir says you know I is at stake all the time you know why not have that be this kind of like central you know mode of expression in which there's argument there's self there's mm-hmm. transformation yeah. and that all of that is present in our own kind of third person this paper will mm-hmm. you know articulate the following um we're doing that but we're just having to constrain ourselves by a, a differing standard but right? i think she does what i think like so many great poets do which is she's talking about herself but not in a narcissistic way mm. so the ability and it's such a fine line sometimes but the ability to use a particular sensorial experience or tidbit or vignette that happens to you walking home or on the subway or whatever and you're using I you're not denying the I and pretending that it's the view from nowhere but at the same time you're using it to ultimately um, or not even ultimately but simultaneously create some um, picture into the world mm-hmm. you know or picture into a, an experience that's broader than you and I don't want to say universal mm-hmm. experience yeah. but like experience that others can feel themselves in and this I think is, that she does that so really well. much of our conversation from last time really? about Kara Kaling's book oh, like the cinematic yeah. reality and like yes. sensory motor perception and stuff but like mm-hmm. like the way you can make sense of things that you're seeing is like filtered through your your like various overlapping common senses so so not like that case I guess what you're saying is that like the memoir draws on while transgressing common senses. <laughs> you know, it's creating yeah. a new common sense in one, se- or mm-hmm. in one sense. Sorry to say sense so many times. Sensity senses. Sensity senses. But it's like, yeah, so the, the memoir becomes one way in which an author, a thinker, 
you know, creates a sense, Mm -hmm. you know, drawing on various common senses in such a way that, you know, kind of, it becomes this kind of transgressive, it it could be potentially normative, it could be transgressive, it could be normative and transgressive in multiple ways um, throughout the piece, right? I mean, it could be doing all kinds of things simultaneously. How would you guys respond to a sort of critique of work like this that says that memoir isn't sort of like rigorous enough that's bullshit okay that would be my immediate okay i know that that's what we all think (laughs) but like how would we engage that view sincerely may i yeah i don't want to be the 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 male that like speaks all the time and steamrolls (laughs) it's quite all right um yeah i would say like the memoir gets to you know occupy a space of importance because as poetry and other forms of writing um, you know, it's not just simply a sustained argumentative exposition that, you know, holds the place, you know, of truth, mm-hmm. right? The memoir explores extraordinary themes. The poem explores extraordinary themes and should be used, I think, you know, in simultaneous, you know, importance with other forms of writing mm-hmm. as a means of, um, as, as not just art, but as a means, as a source, as a source of <clears throat> something that says, this is a life experience or this is a, st- a sustained yeah. argument or this is the way in which, you know, the world operates for this particular person or this kind of, you know, um, you yeah. know set of, of discourse. So something that kind of worries me about like a potential way somebody might take that claim, right, would be that... Which claim? <clears throat> the claim the that, 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 yeah. The, so, okay, we're defending memoir as, as a like s- source, as a part of as rigorous as like academic theoretical production right um you know knowledge production but like the claim you just made was to make the case to somebody who doesn't buy that it's rigorous enough or or, um useful enough right is to say that like it ought to be considered as a genuine sort of source of something right that i worry that that like bastardizes the thing that memoir actually does well, right? Which if is... we say that, like, oh, it's a source of knowledge, right? Then so we're I'm getting into sort of like knowledge, sort of, yeah, sort so of like authenticity oh. claims, yeah. like, oh, it, or it, it like maybe becomes co-opted as a sort of like data point, right? That like this is a this is evidence of the fact that like this is some aspect of reality we can like measure or well, I think or that time, I would, that's a really you know, good point, yeah. I guess. I mean, I, I don't I, think well, that. I didn't think, well, I didn't think <laughs> like that, but I think that's like a really excellent critique of the way that I just approached that. I think that there, there's two questions I would raise. Um, and this actually comes on the tails of a two-hour conversation I had with someone in our department who was basically like, can you tell me what affect theory is and why it's useful? And can you tell me why political theory is worth anything? And it I was, hate that question. But you know, it was a really, really good exercise. But people really, ask it all the time. But it was really good because I'm only used to talking to you guys, to mm-hmm. be honest. And that is illuminating and wonderful and warm and fuzzy. But, like, it's really, it was really rigorous for me to try to answer the sort of question you're raising. And I learned a lot doing it. So it was, like, a good conversation, even though I was flustered, most of all with my own inability mm-hmm. to adequately express what I wanted to express. Maybe the words aren't. Words are words aren't out of that situation. They oftentimes are. But I think like this question of um, you know, somebody saying, so what is this? You know, like why why does this person, you know, get to be considered um for a political theory podcast? I would say, well, what's 
first of all, what do you mean by rigor? Right. But that in some way still falls into the camp we were just talking about. Yeah. And also, why is, why is quote-unquote rigor your criterion? Well, let's be clear. That's not my criterion. Oh, absolutely. No, no. Not, yeah, yeah, not yeah. you as an Emily right, right. That's the Presenting that's, a, kind of a devil's but advocate. But talking to the devil's no, advocate, so. which man. is, quote, the Academy. Oh, yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. In, in well, all of his glory. But then also in the answer, again, going back to form, when she says, like, you know, I learned to write for no one. Right. Um, she's not, you know, she's not, not only is she not trying to write for the Academy, but she's also not trying to write for the anti-Academy. Because right. that's just, like, reinforcing the Academy in a sense. Or, like, reinforcing the divide, right? To say that, like, the Academy is somehow separate from, or, like has critical distance from the not academy. Right. right. And also like, she's not saying my project is to create alternative knowledges. I mean, right. that sort of code word for like, with still within the academy, that's which is true. super fucking important. But like, I don't think that that's her project mm-hmm. necessarily, even though she is, she is doing mm-hmm. that by default. If you're yeah. going to read it from a certain lens or like, well, you know, what, what constitutes alternative knowledges in that sense? It's like, is it, is it alternative knowledges in the way in which we approach what's being produced in the sense that, you know, it's a different method for the production of knowledge. Is it subterranean knowledge in the sense that it's queer or -hmm. in the sense that it's not something that's immediately, you know, discernible or legible. And, you know, and, and in doing so in saying like, I'm not meaning to produce alternative Alternative knowledge. knowledge, um, Is she at least presenting a caveat to say, don't, Si- don't silo my work. Well, she doesn't in such say a way. that. I'm just. Saying. Oh, oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, in such a way as to say, don't silo the work to be the sort of you know revolutionary subject. You know, mm-hmm. in in one sense, like I'm not presenting a revolutionary way of expressing a thing. Yeah. And perhaps we've been doing this, but we haven't been aware of how we've been doing it. And the memoir or the the more radical ways of expressing ourselves, you know, through poetry, through you know fragments aphorisms and you know and you know prose oriented writing that's not sus- quote sustained argumentation although i i reject that that idea that the memoir wouldn't be sustained argumentation mm-hmm. you know is nevertheless a way that we can explore these um you know multifaceted ways of being becoming an argument but you know? also she's Something, doing a form yeah. of course sorry I no. just, she's doing a form of i mean if you wanted to sort of like try to fit her into a box for an instrumentalist argument with the invisible amoebic devil's advocate that we've invoked. I mean, she's really doing a form of quantitative research, like in in that Mm -hmm. sense, you know, using her own life, using her own thoughts, because she's deeply, rigorously, existentially engaging with Wittgenstein and all these other people um, on, you know, this idea of whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent, and all of these things. But she's doing it without saying, my next move shall be to da-da-da-da-da in section three. Right. And instead she's going to a um, flashback or an illumination. Or She talks at one point, she uses the word flash. Do you guys remember where it is? No. Um, I mean, she talks about um, kaleidoscopic, sh- kaleidoscopic mm-hmm. shifting, and I actually thought of Benjamin there and understanding mm, things mm-hmm. in flashes. And she talks at one point about the mercy of flashes. Yeah. If you try to be conscious all the time of what, what it means to have or perform a gender mm-hmm. which is grueling and oppressive for many bodies for many people um it's really like merciless and that right. there's a mercy in only receiving insight and flashes and so i think in some ways she's 
playing with that in her form. I, so I love that you just went to that place because I think it's a, so the second sort of major question that was raised for us in this text was like this question of what the binary of normative transgressive does, like what work it does both in academia and in like social movements and like how do we get out of this binary? What is, you know, like what are its consequences? What are the, what are the alternatives? Right. And I think that what you were just hinting at, right. This, this like mercilessness of, um, of, um, I lost my words of like trying to live the thing that you do all the time. Right. Is mm -hmm. one way, one other way of framing it is, um, like speaks to the need for this form, right. That this form is maybe transgressive in a way that, speaks specifically to a particular kind of content right so not to reify the form content dichotomy but yeah. I think in this case it's kind of useful to say that like actually what the form does right what the maybe what the narrative does or what the memoir does in this case is like specific to what's contained within it in in some ways or like the like the difficulty the messiness of like what's within it or you know it, it will specifically right it's like it's trying to destabilize this and what um you know the author is attempting to the thinker here is attempting to do is destabilize its distinction in such a way as like do you there's a potential to fall into a kind of trans normativity too where it's like mm -hmm. if you're always transgressive or you're always engaging in something that's transgressive right um then in some level are you attempting to make legible the transgressive which thus implies that you're inviting the apparatus or the grid of legibility onto your transgressive behavior mm -hmm. or action. Right, and like thus, Nelson totally is like worried about that. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, and I think that, you know, in my own work with like Paisley Kuro, we, we concern ourselves with, you know, for transnormativity, like we're using it specifically in the ways in which like, you know, trans lives attempt to, you know, grid themselves onto and borrowing from homonormativity like Jasper Pouard mm -hmm. and the like. But like transnormativity in this sense could also mean specifically mm -hmm. transgressive behaviors outside of that frame inviting legibility politics in such a way as to say oh this is now you know we're making visible what was once invisible or non-visible isn't there a violence and danger in doing so and then in you know what is that violence i think like mm -hmm. um you know since uh talking about butler quite a bit butler just recently published on um, her new book on the performative uh, the, the performativity of public assembly mm -hmm. and i think that at one point she says as every there's for every expanse of legibility and intelligibility there's also an extra expansion of all that which you know is exceeds it right so all that which is unintelligible becomes expanded and so it's like the invitation of you know the intelligible light Mm -hmm. um, somehow makes it such that we have to question what violence is done by that intelligible light. Mm -hmm. We, I think we'd covered that a little bit, like in, in a number of um, mm -hmm. podcasts ago, when we were talking about Ranciere a little bit. I think mm -hmm. on the um, intelligibility politics and aesthetics, but like what violence happens when you know we invite this thing in, where all of a sudden it becomes 
I've been talking for a while now, I feel like. Um, no, we, like 30 seconds. Yeah, well, we invite in this light. I look says, at my watch as though I've been keeping track. It's more like a minute and a half. I've been like really just monopolizing. But it's like when we invite this light in and we say, look at this thing. How do we make it legible? How do we make it you know, accessible? Mm-hmm. And what happens when the memoir itself, which I think is a transgressive way of academic writing, mm-hmm. you know, on one level. Do you mean in the sense that, like, what the memoir does is not necessarily shine a light on the thing to make it legible, but rather due to its, like, sort of personalized and, like, artistic nature, it's, there is, it still, like, exists a little bit within the realm of illegibility absolutely and i wish that you were always around me all the time because (laughs) you seem to like translate what i'm saying more perfectly every goddamn time so perfect segue speaking of translation (laughs) speaking of translation i'm i feel called to read this particular passage um i don't know what page it's on because we read it printed on the e-copy yeah we read an electronic copy um while we talked, we said words like nonviolence, assimilation, threats to survival, preserving the radical. But when I think about it now, I hear only the background buzz of our trying to explain something to each other, to ourselves, about our lived experiences thus far on this peeled, endangered planet. As is so often the case, the intensity of our need to be understood distorted our positions, backed us further into the cage. <laughs> but Do you want to be right or do you want to connect? Asked couples therapists everywhere. The aim is not to answer questions, it's to get out of it, to get out of it. And the last Deleuze. two parts are yeah. um, italicized because they're taken from Deleuze and what's the one before? Parnet. Parnet, yeah. Um, but I think that that's really um, kind of one of the more... Uh, direct places where she's flirting with this thin line mm-hmm. between preserving well, the radical, preserving the radical, versus being understood, which is weird, legible. right? It's like on some level, like how does one preserve the radical with, without being conservative, right? It's like what do you right. preserve radically without simultaneously wanting to do a conservative thing? Well, she mm-hmm. and and to be clear, this is she's talking about preserving the radical <clears throat> in in italics. So either it's a quote from somebody else or, or she's really no important. no it's from their quote from their conversation oh yeah oh. so it's a quote from their conversation so in other words she's not advocating for a preserve preservation of the radical she's kind of talking about um the thinking that goes into those conversations mm-hmm. right and like what it what might get you to defending a position that that entails saying we have to preserve the radical even if that's not the position that you really yeah hold yeah. yeah, but I mean, okay. I I do yeah. think memoir is is like in a certain sense anti dogmatic in that way, and again, I guess that's why I go back to Benjamin mm-hmm. and the idea that um, understanding comes through these flashes rather than in some um, pre prescribed way where it's delivered to you because that would be kind of helping mm-hmm. the fascists, so to speak. Or, I mean, I don't know. She's like, not trying to deliver her point to your door. I yeah. think it's, you have to kind of, like, find it in yourself and through the But, I, you know, simultaneously, right, like, understanding isn't something that comes individually. So, you know, the, yeah. these flashes that occur happen as a result of intersubjective exchange. Absolutely. And so the, the memoir itself is 
a set of intersubjective exchanges writ on mm -hmm. page, right? It's it's not, you know, it's about, you know, it, whereas an academic journal is going to work through a sustained set of arguments, quote, I'm, I'm using scare quotes here for those listeners out there obviously can't see me, but like in a memoir, you're exchanging you never ideas, know. There is right? a webcam on well, here. Well, that's true, yeah. Um, <laughs> We're probably being NSA'd. You know, yeah, we like, Well, the author is like exchanging ideas with, you know, a person in her head, but a person in her head that, like, <clears throat> took place at a particular time. Right. And well, and the person who's read the manuscript and had a hand in, you know. Right. And so these flashes, as, as, Benjamin, as Benjamin would put it, you know, come also from the fact that these flashes happen intersubjectively, even if it's psychically, from our exchanges. And so it's mm -hmm. never in isolation. And the only yeah, reason why, you know, honestly, like, I bring this up because it, it feels like I've been exchanging a lot on Facebook lately, like, mm -hmm. in, in fora, like, from the trans uh, Transgender Facebook Alliance to um, my own, like, random, like, you know, very private sort of political forum that I'm in mm -hmm. um, that's filled with conservative thinkers, and it's really odd. But um, nevertheless, like, <laughs> there's this, all this talk about individuality and individualism. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think to myself, there's nothing individual about what we're doing on Facebook. Yeah, um, yeah, and there's absolutely. nothing individual about thinking in itself. It always seems to spring from a source that comes directly from an external, you know, interaction. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, something that's so beautifully radical, in one sense, about the memoir, is that it, from the outset, accepts that. Mm -hmm. It says, these are exchanges I've had with myself and others, mm -hmm. you know? Whereas other forms, if we're going back to the first part, seem to just sort of, you know, depart from that, you know? And right. It, or footnote. Right, it's it. the authenticity question. Right. Again. Or like, who is the I that speaks, right? Exactly. In, in, in an academic paper, it's the I that is like disciplined according to the discipline. And, and, and <laughs> it's only through an endnote or a footnote through which we, we get to see the I as an actor that has been engaged with other external sources mm -hmm. that have worked upon the author. And I think like the, mem the, the memoir is this really beautiful way in which it is sort of insinuated throughout, like quite literally in, the, in that word, mm -hmm. you know, insinuated through, you know, the, the meat of, of the actual work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that that works to, again, you know, transgressing what would be norm, the, the norm of, you know, established ways of understanding, you know, what is an argument right. or what is our engagement with, the canon. Or what's the appropriate way to make an argument. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. She says, um, she, she, I mean, in reference, because she's referencing the canon and she's bringing the canon in, but again, I think she's doing it in very choice, deliberate ways. So mm -hmm. the focus is her as the central philosopher, mm -hmm. in a way, rather than other people. Awesome. At one point she says, honestly, I find it more embarrassing than enraging to read Baudelaire, Zizek, Badieu, and other revered philosophers of the day pontificating on how we might save ourselves from the humanity-annihilating threat of the turkey baster in reference to insemination, which no one uses, by the way. The preferred tool is an oral syringe in order to protect the fate of this endangered, quote, sexed being, end quote. And by sex, to make no mistake, they mean one of the two options. And then she quotes Zizek. And so I think that, you know, that's just kind of one example of how she um, both uses particular elements of the canon and also kind of um, 
dismisses it but in a way that's engaging it it's not like it's dismissing it imminently you could mm-hmm. say like by engaging it from the inside. I wonder yeah. I wonder if this is just occurring to me now <coughs> but if maybe like the memoir is the only setting where that's that possible. makes sense or po- that's possible but I don't right, think it is the conditions for the possibility of yeah, like an actual like, critical engagement but, but not even but like critical without the like reverence that is normally accorded with like writing a critique of something Uh right you don't have to like exalt them for their greatness of their time you can say like these are absurd claims and i find them ridiculous yeah but i actually think it's it's not it's not so much is the memoir the only place as is the courage to move beyond traditional academic writing the place so the non-academic so i'm thinking again about benjamin just because He's another example of somebody that I think does this and mm-hmm. accomplishes this, but um, and not through a memoir, mm-hmm. but through a totally non-traditional way of writing and right. bringing in theses and right. bringing in but, playful images. You know, like, and look, I hate to quote another dead white guy, but Nietzsche says, like, For great, the love of dead white guys. I know. It's like, great thinkers are sometimes born posthumously, and here's Benjamin, who was not born in greatness, you know, through his work until after he died. Yeah. In which his work was made, you know, in that sense, thinking um, and his thought famous. And so it's like the memoir is a way in which, you know, this particular thinker gets to express these thoughts in such a way that it is published and, you know, affects on a podcast with, you know, thank you listeners for making us like important in your lives, <laughs> you know, get, you know, get some airtime. And so it's like, I'm not, like, shooting that down. I, I don't mean to, like, use this as an opportunity to be like, Rachel, I believe that what you just said is wrong. But, like, you know, to Maybe say you that... Maybe you do, that's fine. No, but, I mean, like, Benjamin's, you know, experience, I think, or the experience of Benjamin happened posthumously. Mm-hmm. And, but here we get an opportunity to, to see the memoir as an opportunity as... Living, as a living moment, right? Yeah. It's, like, in the moment, it, it mm-hmm. is, you know, a part of our lives. We're, we are simultaneously, and I think, like, Maybe going back, um, you know, we are using multimedia to establish, like, connections between the memoir as a printed page, the digital moment, mm-hmm. the, you know, the recorded moment on, you know, Always Already, and, you know, the podcast that's available via URL. And I think all of these things, like, come together in such a way as to mean that perhaps, I don't know, the importance of thinkers come alive now, maybe, or... It's no longer just a posthumous notion, but that rather, be, given the speed of technology, we can engage with with these thoughts and these thinkings um, in in ways that are are more uh, or quick. I don't know, immediate. Like, immediate. There we go. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I totally like. First of all, right? I I don't mean to. I'm not dismissing what you just said. I'm I'm suggesting merely that um, you know this idea is what's happening in the memoir is something, you know, at least in 2015, you know, we're, we are able to do it now, right? It's like in the now. But just because she's writing, I mean, sure. Yeah. I don't think that necessarily, I think what you said makes sense. And I don't think that negates what I said. Okay, good. Okay. I mean, I think what I was saying was simply that Emily asked, is it particular to exclusively the memoir to be able to do that kind of, you know, irreverent, um, making rigorous points without relying on the canon and I thought and I was just saying no I think there's other examples of people who do that and try to create Mm -hmm. the sense of um accumulating knowledge not through the 
the linear reason of logic okay, and yeah. proofs mm-hmm. and um, postulates and corollaries, but yeah. through illumination. And I think Benjamin is an example of that. <clears throat> but I, I wasn't I saying, I, but I mean, yeah. I, I, that doesn't mean that I'm making a claim that they do it in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, because I felt oh, like an asshole. Should we <laughs> talk about this idea of pregnancy as being queer? Sure. Should I find that? Should I try to find that quotation where she uh, talks about that? Sure. I can tell you. May I? When I was pregnant. When I was once pregnant. No, I remember. Um, okay. So Susan Stryker's piece on um, her letter to Victor Frank or Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she was writing in in a memoir esque um, piece about transgender rage, mm-hmm. and I remember specifically this like this moment in which. She was um, with, you know, a partner and, you know, and the partner was giving birth and all of the things that, you know, she was feeling simultaneously. And that was what was resonating with me when I heard about, like, the queerness of pregnancy and Mm -hmm. what happens to bodies is that it's more than just the experiences in terms of the embodiment of a single person. Um, and, and that person as being pregnant, uh, you know, as a, you know, a, a, you know, a female bodied or like birth assigned female who, you know, gets pregnant mm-hmm. or rather pregnancy can be queered in such a way as to say, how does one who identifies and is woman and female, you know, simultaneously experiencing pregnancy, you know, with their partner, mm-hmm. right? who is not in that sense normatively female, mm-hmm. right? Normatively, and I use that very strongly. Um, and that's, for me, it's like pregnancy is not only in the sense, because I kind of like see where this is going in terms of like how it's queered, mm-hmm. but like queer, like queering pregnancy simultaneously implicates trans women, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and their experiences with how, you know, and what those experiences must be with partners. Implicates, what do you mean by implicating? I think yeah. it's, it's implicating in such a way that, you know, how does one experience, and I go back to Stryker's piece um, on transgender rage, how does one experience, you know, in a culture that sort of, you know, um, valorizes, you know, pregnancy for, um, you know, female assigned at birth bodies, you know, that these are things that can only be experienced by... I don't think she's saying that, though. No, so, I think... But yeah. Well, I'm not saying that Maggie is saying that. Yeah. I'm saying that, like, in the striker piece, there yeah. is a there's a certain degree of, you know, there is an affect there that can't be ignored, right? And that there is something queered in pregnancy and the experiences that are intersubjective mm-hmm. in a partnership as such. Mm-hmm. And although that might not be something that explore, that's explored here... It's something that resonated with me mm-hmm. to other pieces. Yeah. Um, in specific, that which was also very memoir-esque. Yeah. I, so the thing that I think is so interesting about this, this and Susan, if you're listening, I, I hope I got that right because I love you. <laughs> Should we? Can we read? Yeah. yeah. Let's read it. So this follows the conversation where she's talking about how um, her ex is visiting her and Harry, her partner. And finds this mug that was made on one of these snapfish mugs where you can, like, submit a picture and they turn it into a mug. And it's a picture of her and Harry and her child and her stepson um, all at the Nutcracker. And the ex makes some comment, like, some kind of, like, easily 
uh, delivered comment without thinking about the impact on her of, um, wow, that's the most heteronormative thing I've ever seen. And that um, she talks about, explores why that, you know, irks her at the same time that elements of it appear to be true. And she says, um, but what about it, meaning the mug, is the essence of heteronormativity? That my mother made a mug on a bougie service like Snapfish that were clearly participating or acquiescing into participating in a long tradition of families being photographed at holiday time in their holiday best. That my mother made me the mug in part to indicate that she recognizes and accepts my tribe as family. What about my pregnancy? Is that inherently heteronormative? Or is the presumed opposition of queerness and procreation, or to put a finer edge on it, maternity, more a reactionary embrace of how things have shaken down for queers than the mark of some ontological truth. As more queers have kids, will the presumed opposition similarly wither away? Mm. Will you miss it? Here is, excuse me, is there something inherently queer about pregnancy itself insofar as it profoundly alters one's quote-unquote normal state and occasions a radical intimacy with and radical alienation from one's body? How can an experience so profoundly strange and wild and transformative also symbolize or enact the ultimate conformity? Or is this just another disqualification of anything tied too closely to the female animal from the privileged term? So I think that goes to what you were saying. Mm -hmm. In this case, nonconformity or radicality. What about the fact that Harry is neither male nor female? I'm a special, a two-for-one, his character Valentine explains in By Hook or By Crook. And I really want to keep reading. Well, she's me. quoting Butler. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, and taking these when or how do new kinship systems mime older nuclear family arrangements? And when or how do they radically recontextualize them in a way that constitutes a rethinking of kinship? Yeah. I think that's really important. Yeah. How can you tell, or rather, who's to, t who's to tell? I think that's super important. Mm -hmm. Tell your girlfriend to find a different kid to play house with your ex would say after we moved in, mm. to align oneself with the real while intimating that others are at play, approximate, or in imitation can feel good. But any fixed claims on realness, especially when it is tied to an identity, also has a finger in psychosis. Mm. If a man who thinks he is a king is mad, a king who thinks he is a king is no less so. Is That's that a con. That's a con. Yeah. Oh, your other, your other, main, your other dude. Main man. Sorry, yeah, I didn't your other know why. main squeeze. I'm sorry, I knew that, and it's from one of his lectures. <laughs> uh, so I think there's a, like two threads. I actually think the thread that B pulled out is kind of there. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's God, like talking so. about that. No, no. Well, I thought your the way you jumped into it first was like thinking about pregnancy as queer or queerness of pregnancy. Yeah. Reminds me of the kind of like this other aspect of the queerness of pregnancy, which is the impossibility of, of like, the normative pregnancy for some, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Which I think is here yes, in some yes. ways. <clears throat> but it's also, like... She's good at translating. I know. <laughs> like, I didn't think I agreed with you. No, but, she's but Emily just fucking great. Actually made me realize All the time. I did I was like, you, you should be you there. You guys are like, jerks. You have to be there at my, like, dissertation <laughs> to fit. Okay. That's the only way I'm going to pass. Okay, and then the other way <laughs> is... Not funny. Um, <laughs> the other thing is, like, I, I think the proposition that just, like, pregnancy itself is queer is, like, messing again with this transformative normative dichotomy, right? Yes. Because what is what can be more, like, banal or 
boring and lame and normal than like being pregnant. It's like right. this is what we do when we go on Facebook and we're like, oh god, everyone's uh, pregnant. Why is baby everyone having pictures, a baby? Yeah. yeah. Or your grandma's like, so I'm gonna die soon. Can Are I expect great grandkids? You know, like. But I think it's important <clears throat> she poses it as a question. For sure. Yeah. But I think just even posing it as a question does a little bit of that transgressive work, right? So it like, I it like it poses it to two different audiences in that sense, right? It poses it to those because I think the thing that the thing that B was trying to draw out, right? The impossibility of that of it for some mm-hmm. the people that audience is already grappling with the queerness of pregnancy already, right? So the, I think to pose this question is to pose it to people who think hmm. being what being pregnant. I'm going to tell you. Okay. Um, being pregnant is like the most normal, you know, thing you can do. It's the right thing to do, right? It's like the do it for the kids, right? <clears throat> Settle down in your nice heteronormative life or homonormative life as it may be and like reproduce, right? <clears throat> so it's to that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would it mean to sit down in your heteronormative home and ask yourself if like your pregnancy queered you no, in, in, a, in yeah, a way. Yeah, no, I love that because, you know, it, it also, it, it questions, <clears throat> like, the constitution of queer in itself. Like, what what does it mean to queer anything, mm-hmm. one? Which, you know, Jade Larissa Schiff at um, Oberlin College always asks in terms of what does it mean to queer anything, which I think is a wonderful question mm-hmm. um, to make sure that we're being critical of that term. Um, and Jade, if you're listening, just... Uh, you know, quick um, hat tip to that. Um, and also, you know, this notion that, yeah, queering the body, I think it is a queer state to be in, right? And I agree. To be in a body, period. You know, to be in a body, Absolutely. to feel embodied. And, you know, and that embodied feeling, which I cannot, I cannot imagine, yeah. um, the embodied feeling of, of pregnancy yeah. is something that I think is in itself maybe deserving of being queered mm-hmm. or thinking of it as a queer state because right. you I know mean, she, because the author oh sorry no 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 go ahead uh, because the author is looking thinker really not the author the thinker is looking at this from a standpoint not only that you know it is transforming and transformative and transgressive of the normal body as it were from you know birth to death you don't have to get pregnant Right. No one in that sense, you know, one can live from, you know, one's own birth to one's own death without experiencing this transformative state. But simultaneously, the state is in itself, you know, it it transgresses a number of things. Right. I mean, all kinds of drastic changes. occur. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting, too, to think about the like virgin whore paradox paradigm right in the context of like a pregnant body right so a pregnant body is simultaneously like the beacon of life but it's also like people are kind of afraid of it think about like also you know what like her mom didn't want to see those pictures of her baby being born and think about like someone who you know was pregnant before a marriage or something it's like you can't i don't know this came to mind thinking you can't wear white at the marriage or something like that's very normative in the sense like white represents virginity and untouchedness Mm -hmm. and you know the jig is up you know, if you've had a kid and you're going into a marriage, like, that's what I've heard in the past. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, why are you wearing white, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something like, and that in itself, it, it, it sort of, you know, I, I, I think it, it messes with this normative state of things. And I think that there's something very, 
you know, it, it, it made me rethink. Is there something inherently queer about pregnancy? No, no, I think that it's, like, it's something interesting because, like, honestly, like, if I read Virginia Held in a different way and mothering and the ethics of mothering as something in, that I find Whoa. deeply problematic. Read but it I find as her, a queer text. As a queer text, hmm. all of a sudden I get the tingles. You just blew my mind. Yeah, you just kind of... But right? you know, I think what we're talking about... <laughs> did, I, did I just go somewhere that I was... Because, like, honestly, when I read... When you were reading that out loud, I was like, Virginia held mothering queer. queer. Interesting. You know, and I thought to myself, oh my fucking God. What happens if we read Held as a queer thing? But I think maybe the move you're talking about is like almost a um, embodied relativism to kind of substitute embodiment into the idea of cultural relativism, you know? Hmm. It's like, and, and this goes back to the idea of do we feel and sense things as individuals or intersubjective? But is and that I think kind of like, queer, though? The idea that you can't, like, that, like, bodily relativism, right? That, like, you can't know whether pregnancy is Feels queer, queer or not. unless that's you're pregnant I mean, unless so, you experience so that's what i'm right, getting right, to right. i think just so i think no doubt there's a certain sense in which she's reifying pregnancy as a deviation from quote-unquote normal which is the body the the body with capacity to reproduce yeah which is inherently a woman is implied at the same time i don't Birth know that that negates her personal subjective feelings that her body feels queer yeah. in its pregnant state compared to its normal state. So, for example, when I'm menstruating every month, I feel completely disembodied. It's mm-hmm. a really strange experience, right? And so, in a sense, that's like this strange outer body experience that deviates from my normal feeling. However, I wouldn't necessarily go stand before the world and say, like, you I, know, feel, I feel queer. queer right now, yeah, right? But so, in a sense, to myself, compared to myself, what I feel is an alienation from my body. And mm-hmm. in that, that sense, it is a feeling of queerness. But, you know, but who has anyone also done, like, like, a Marxist menstruation? But, but also be, then, oh. but then it, but, but, but that's not to say, so, but what I want to say is, obviously, queerness is um, a, a social construct in a way. So one can't just decide in a vacuum they're queer because they feel a difference from themselves. Right. But, so it's a sticky line, Uh. but what I'm trying to put out there is that there's both a certain like embodied um, relativeness, right? right? Like Mm -hmm. an embodied relativity. There's degrees to which we can't name what the other person feels if we've not been in their body, but it's not simply an individualistic endeavor. It's rooted in, Social but it's contingent. Yeah. I know. And yeah. I think that. Yeah. I think so I'm just trying to point wonderful. out. I'm not really like arguing for one side or the other, except to point out that it's a line where there's a line there. No, I think that's right, and I think that you know I would totally agree in the sense that you know, look, as a as a cisgender male, I can only go so far into the conversation as to say everything in this sense is contingent in such a way as to say you know as what you just mentioned, you know, the, the feelings associated with menstruation contingent, right? Um, and queer, but then simultaneously the feelings associated with pregnancy kind of, you know, it, it, it pushes it. And, and indeed as time progresses, right. As one, you know, is perceived as pregnant, it's like, how far along are you, mm-hmm. you know, how more disembodied do you become right. in the sense that now, you know, you are perceived as pregnant right. rather than like, as are you, you or right? Or it's like you're perceived, you know, and this is implicates all kinds of very complex things right on the one hand like menstruation implies this kind of like oh you're you know you're menstruating are you menstruating you know um your moods change are you going through mood shifts you're hormonal 
to if someone perceives you as pregnant, you're always going through hormonal changes. You're always going through mood shifts. You're all like there's a perception that your body well, there's immediately a goes. Thing. There's yeah, there's this kind of immediate kind of normative shift that I think on some level I was thinking like there's immediate kind of normative shell over a transformative and perhaps transnormative complication to the body. Potentiality. Potentiality. It's like we're going to put you in the silo that says this thing. But what pregnancy does is it queers bodies and queers perceptions on multiple levels. But like also in relation to only specific things. Yeah, so no. in relation yeah. to the already the, norm- yeah, no. normalized reproductive body. <laughs> so this is also an interesting temporal element to this conversation, which is we have, so we're recording this episode. <laughs> no, we're recording this episode on December 17th to be released in 18th. a couple weeks, 18th, whatever day. Yeah. Is it really? Yeah, Does it really matter? Yeah. Someday in December to be released in <laughs> early January. And there's like this irony that we're, we're talking about pregnancy right now, not having yet listen to a, ah. an episode of Epistemic Unruliness that was just recorded a couple of days ago that will be released next week for us now in this moment, but for you listening, it will have been released two weeks prior. So there, right. there's there this is like a weird, weird queer temporality yeah. there. I, I just had to point that out no. because, ah. because I would I would actually have liked to listen to that interview before that's we really, talked about this, but really it's just it's not just it's not ready temporally yet. Temporally no, impossible. Yeah, no, I love yeah. that. No, I really do. This has gotten. This has gotten. I feel like. I feel okay, like. Wait, my mind can I say is one one thing? Hole. When you were talking about menstruating just now, B, <laughs> with, all, with, all, with all of your experience, of course, yes. in my experience, okay. I was I thinking. Prefer- I was thinking. Right. So that the the sort of argument that like you're not yourself when you're menstruating, right, is is an interesting kind of complication to, huh? I was I was borrowing from Ray. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I was, I was joking. Oh, thank God! Um, I was like, <laughs> I wasn't speaking from like some kind of like. Well, I read somewhere that you know scientifically speaking, their periods not, attract bears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm more intuitive when I'm on my period. I feel more emotional. <laughs> I hate you. All. I'm on my period right now. <laughs> I'm actually not. Um, I'm a total bitch. Wait, I want to say this. Oh, Fine. yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> we Biting end. tongue we, now. We should and end very soon. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this there's... has been an exciting episode. I know. I'm a little bit like turned on. I'm gonna oh, murder yeah. you My both right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's also really cold in here. <laughs> no, oh, is it? I'm wearing this guy. Can I finish? This all right, sorry, sorry, sorry. Go on, Emily. Okay, so the, <laughs> like presumably, okay. There, here's an also interesting thing, right? Part of the way you characterize your your menstrual cycle your period right is like regular right like do you have mm-hmm. a regular period right yeah. which invokes um like a, a a sort of vocabulary of normativity already mm-hmm. but then you also say there there's also the idea that you're like you're not yourself when you're on your period right so there's like yeah. some you that's a, that's this like essential core that is not affected by hormones but then the hormones like make you deviate from the norm so right. we're trying we're sort of talking about whether that's queer at all and then like how that relates to the potential potentiality of queerness in pregnancy mm-hmm. but like why would that thing that if you are right quote regular <laughs> Uh, on your period right then you're presumably like not you for nearly a quarter of your entire life right Right. so what how is that turning right like how is that an any less authentic you than 
I don't know. I'm just... No, but I think what you're getting at is... I mean, again, I think that goes back to that question of the social versus the individual. Right. And I also hate the word authenticity, but I think it, like, it permeates this these <coughs> kinds of discussions. It's a good because it's like, foil. Yeah, because, it, because what other, like, what other words do you have to talk about, you know, yourself other than the word self, which is obviously, like, you know, in all of its incarnations, like, variously problematic, but... But when you say quarter, for example, quarter of your life, like you think about that in terms of it, it's being spread throughout mm-hmm. your life and that any moment, right, throughout your life, you can pick one yeah. moment and not be absolutely certain as to whether one moment of that life is not, you know, in that sense, mm-hmm. menstruating. And in one sense, like, is that not normal? Mm-hmm. Is this transgressive? Is this at the same time normal what is normal what is queer and it's like i think on some level like i you know i believe like that is such a i think that's a wonderful way of just going back and rethinking the ways in which and i think the memoir too mm-hmm. right just rethinks and restages the way that we can like ultimately have a discussion about like, what, yeah. about, like our discussion about what <clears throat> constitutes the methods of normal yeah but you know what else is, i just occurred to me is oh. that we're trying to get at this question right is there something inherently queer about pregnancy itself and we've kind of deviated to oh, we've yeah. changed the question to like is there something queer about menstruation, menstruation. which i wonder how, like for me i probably went there because like i have never been pregnant so my mind is like i'm when i think pregnancy my only like physical connection to something maybe akin to pregnancy is like an extra hormonal state or like dealing with the part of your life that would involve pregnancy at some point right Mm -hmm. which would be not menstruating which would also be a deviation from the norm right Right. not menstruating when you're pregnant is is a different deviation but it's a deviation nonetheless from you as a non-hormonally uh affected being right but there's something like about the question even there's like an impossibility. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. I think that um, we did a damn good job talking about this. Well, I think that, you know, ultimately... The Do you guys want to wrap up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, final, final last, like, last words. I believe... I like your straight I know. <laughs> yeah. One wrap up. Uh, one. Um, for me, this is the only thing. I don't know why I said one. Um, the only thing for me is that the memoir um, here, you know, mm-hmm. I think memoir. Well, actually, two things. One, the memoir... Shocking. Um, I know, shocking. There's always something. It's just more. Um, the, the memoir exudes something that's more than just simply something that's prose. I think that it's mm-hmm. academic. I think that it is argumentative. I think that it examines and can examine multiple ways of being and becoming and, you know, and the ways in which the canon can actually be engaged. And two, for my own work in archival work, you know, the memoir, the poem, um, the personal diary are all things that are, you know, ephemera, remnants of life that ultimately have to be discovered, you know, that have to be on some level read Mm -hmm. because these are things that, you know, if this were never published, Mm -hmm. you know, should be in some level, you know, preserved for, you know, posterity, but, you know, for someone to come along and to discover in such a way as to be, you know, have a revelation about the ways in which the canon has been either fucked over, fucked, or, you know, should be fucked with. And maybe that's ultimately what the memoir does, and is I think, it fucks with the canon. And I think also Ooh. she's not, I mean, I'm not saying you meant it this way, but 
I think she's not waiting to be discovered in that sense. She right. and, and that goes back to the audience question of writing for no one in a sense. Yeah. Do you want to read a poem to? Sure. To. Should so I read one of my poems? Yes. Yeah, oh, one of yours. First of all, we have a resident poet here. Um, you know, Ray is a wonderful poet. I attended, uh, and, and Melanie and performed and I, with, uh, and performed with, um, should we do that? Oh my God. Um, no, no, no. Do that. Oh God. If you could do the Helen of Troy poem, that would be amazing. But oh, I don't that's know if you really had that. long. It's pretty long. Oh, okay. Do a short uh, one. Okay. I'll do a short one. This is called, uh, Kazimierz, which is a place in Poland. Poland, right? Yeah. Poland that I visited two summers ago. From the open window, horse hooves move down synthetic cobbled streets to an old world Disney on ice somewhere in the middle of Krakow. I know why it is they are here, to show tourists how wistfully teachers and poets and mothers used to live back when fiddles were used to keep people from dying dreary deaths and streetlights were for statesmen. And still I inaudibly believe that the trotting beneath my window is the sound of the milkman delivering sundries and I wonder in how many tourists from now, the grumbling of cars will woo a family that has only ever driven hovercrafts into a romance with the hum of distance. Thank you, Ray. Um, so on that note, we're going to close it out for today. Thank you for joining us on our Thanks, winding road of a conversation. Oh, this is wonderful. Um, we, we've skipped, as you may have noticed, um, advice on dreams for today in lieu of a poetry reading. That's Plus, right. We thought the nature of the this discussion would lend itself to, you know. Absolutely. So just remember, you know, if you have a uh, an advice question, if you have a dream that you want to have interpreted by these obvious experts, um, including John, who with us right now. Um, he's you know, no longer with us. Please, no longer Just with us. Um, he's with us. Um, that was really boring. Yeah, that was terrible. Um, just make sure, just email us, alwaysalready um, at gmail.com. Always already podcast. Right? I just oh, podcast. Okay, fine. Also, One tweet us. Question. Oh, tweet us. I yeah. have an advice question. It's for oh. Emily Crandall. Okay. How do you get your nail polish to stay on so well? Because mine's oh. chipping already. I'm really bad at painting my own nails, and it took me like 45 minutes to do this this morning. Oh, you did it this morning. Yeah. That's also part that's, of it. That's oh. I thought that was the same it's a from temporal. last Friday, and no, I was no. like, how did you do that? No, okay, that so one got so messed up. I can, you, I, I can tell you how I do mine. Okay. So oh. you, you apply, like, natural. Yeah, how heteronormative of you to ask me, the woman. Like, well, so, you're also wearing nail polish. I know. That looks good, and he is not. So Sally Hansen has nail lacquer. It's clear. Mm -hmm. So if you actually apply, like, standard nail polish and then mm -hmm. apply, you know, about 20 minutes after um, the, the nail polish is dry, the nail lacquer that's, that's oh. very clear, either gel or otherwise. Oh yeah, I apply a top on. coat. Um, top coat. That's smart. Bam. It, it doesn't ship Maybe for I'll about a week or two. Oh. Well, well, I like guess. it depends also, you know, like the kind of rigorous, you know, stuff that you're doing with your nails. Irrigorous. Irrigorous, like Irrigorous. a rigoray. Okay, we are going to end this podcast Irriga Rachel. Thank you. Signing out. Thank you. And have an always already day. <laughs>
Happy New Year from all of us here at the Always Already Podcast. And uh, stay tuned. We're going to have some major announcements coming up. Um, a couple of good beneficial changes for all of us. And uh, a kind of unique episode that's in the works. So be uh, on the lookout for all of those things. Thanks to listener Angel Lemke for suggesting we read Maggie Nelson's Argonauts. Thank you to my friend Leah for the intro music that you heard. That's her static loops. And of course, thank you to B for this outro music you're hearing right now. It's B's cover of Landslide. Until next time, have an always already day.